Welcome to Film Fight Club. I am Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker and all-round gadabout Chris Evans. What's a gadabout? I, I actually, I'm not. I've never heard that word before. English, please. It, it's one of those just wonderful, nonsensical. It's, but it seems like a great word that I should know, but I don't. But hello, everyone. It's something a gadabout would say, I reckon. Ah, I see. Okay. I'll, I'll look this up later. I, I, I need another appropriate term to describe Virat, but I'm just going to describe you as Australia's biggest film and tennis fan, Virat Nehru, joining us today. Thank you. I'll be in Melbourne next week. So will I, actually. Of the Open semi-finals. Oh, what day, what day will you be in Melbourne? I'll be there Thursday, Friday, and flying back on Saturday. So, uh, so we'll just miss you, probably. That's all right. Uh, I'm hoping Fedor doesn't miss me, because I'm going to watch him, so he better be in the semi-finals. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm going to be very angry. We just wanted to clarify for anyone who's tuning in right now, yes, this is a film show. We will not be talking about sport for the entirety of the hour, even though we all do love tennis very much. But I will be in Sydney, as will two SER studios, bringing you some wonderful programming, including the films we are discussing this week, because we have a bit of an unusual week. We're doing something different that we've never done before, and that is because we are talking about Netflix and only Netflix releases. This is... I've been looking forward to this one. Wow. What is film? What is television? What is Netflix? Should Netflix films be considered direct-to-video? Is Netflix video or is it is is it the new cinema? I don't know. They're funding definitely some big-budget direct-to-video movies, that's for sure. I mean, it is the biggest question of all time. Exactly. What is the cinematic medium? What is the medium of the visual? You heard it here frame? first, guys. The biggest question of all time. But it's a fair question. I mean, we're what talking is cinema? about effectively TV movies by definition, and some of them Which, maybe uh, 90 million blockbusters by Exactly, like by people like Martin Scorsese, and they're going potentially in the future head-to-head with prestige cinema releases. It's a brave new world. For the first time, we had Netflix films competing at the Cannes Film Festival this year, last year, which they promptly put an end to. And sooner or later, a Netflix film is going to get a Oscar nomination. I know. I mean, there was a time when video-on-demand services and movies like Sharknado were yeah, it was... frowned upon. But now they are cult films. And also... Until recently, Video On Demand was just the home to Steven Seagal and other Vladimir Putin puppets. So <laughs> Netflix are really bringing it out of that ghetto with such woke, enlightened content as Mudbound and Bright. Yes. Um, speaking of Netflix's amazing content, I think their earlier, their biggest film deal, their, you know, their number one attraction was a six-film deal with Adam Sandler, including an adaptation called The Ridiculous Six, which had uh, Vanilla Ice as Mark Twain. Uh, <laughs> people, it's weird. Like people watch these movies. Netflix released films with essentially no marketing, unless it's Bright or an Adam Sandler movie. Yeah. Look, still, I think what we're missing out is Pixels. That's the one Adam Sandler <laughs> movie that. But it's not we Netflix really movie. be talking about. Is it actually good? I did not... I never saw it, it either. It just looked like Ghostbusters, but with Pac-Man. Yeah, it's a bit pixelated. That actually does sound pretty good, I'm going to say. Yeah, it, it's probably one of those things that sounds really good, but then you watch it and they find a way to mess it up. Like almost every Adam Sandler film released in the past. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen Myra of its stories. I know we're talking hey, about it later in the Punch program. Punch Drunk Love. What, yeah, is, Punch what, Love's you, great. what are you doing? Punch Drunk Love's great. Adam Sandler can make a good movie. He's a, he's a great actor, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here, aren't we? We are getting ahead of ourselves because we are talking about a number of big Netflix films, some which may be competing at film festivals around the world. Something we discussed last year was whether festivals will be changing their criteria because usually a film has to be... Uh, of it's have cinematic release or to compete for awards it has to have a cinematic release what happened at the Cannes Film Festival last year where everyone was booing Netflix um, whenever their logo appeared before the films was actually boo yeah was actually pretty interesting the reason why 
there um there was a um attempt to oppose Netflix films at the Cannes Film Festival by the French Cinema Foundation or whatever you know Legion of Cinemas whatever they're called League of Extraordinary <laughs> Theater Managers I'm sorry, we, yeah with apart, that, apart from the reason they're snobs excuse me right. French yeah beyond that part of the reason that Netflix refused to play ball is that in France there was a um, restriction that before you show on video on demand services there needs to be a three-year gap from when you release the films in cinemas which I, I kind of agree with Netflix that like why should they play along with that they could release it in cinemas in order to qualify for a competition at the Cannes Film Festival but then they'd need to wait three years to release that movie in France when their entire purpose of being is not to release movies in cinemas it's to release them on Netflix so I think um People are going to have to adjust with the times, and it shows that a lot of the bodies that govern cinema are still, you know, backward in their thinking in this new world when Netflix is producing more and more important content. Well, it's going to be a big discussion on this program into the future. We saw Okja in cinemas and is yet released on Netflix, and it's a brave, brave new world for cinema. We're talking about a number of Netflix films and television series, some of our favorites, some of our least favorites of this episode. Uh, the first of which is Netflix's flagship film. Bright, which was made for a $90 million price tag with the crew of all films, Suicide Squad, director David Ayer, ha! Will Smith, and Joel Edgerton, joined Nimi Rapace and a number of others in... I, this is a fusion, essentially, of cop drama and fantasy. There are elves and other magical beasts in downtown Los Angeles, and Will Smith is a cop who is paired with the only orc on the force, played by Joel Edgerton. And I should mention at this point that orcs are a permanent underclass in Los Angeles and wider society, which is a... Not at all a comment on race. Not at all a contrast. There is a line in this film, fairy lives matter, which is just uh, dropped. Oh, that was of so <laughs> bad. Oh, man. So another thing about this film, this uh, was released at the end of last year. It was labeled by David Ehrlich, the senior critic for IndieWire, as the worst film of 2017. So I went in with absolutely no expectations and... I've got to say I disagree. I didn't. I disliked a lot of it, but a lot of parts that I really enjoyed. It was irreverent in parts. It, the social commentary and world building weren't as well fleshed out as I would have liked. But there was a lot of parts of it that I had a great deal of fun with. I thought um, this was bizarre. I mean, I've got to hand it to Netflix, as we saw with things like Okja. Uh, they take chances. You know, they fund things that no one else will fund, for better or worse. This is basically like a fusion of a uh, big-budget CGI fantasy spectacle with like a David Ayer movie like End of Watch or Street Kings, essentially, um, which is a weird mix. I, partly due to busyness and partly due to not being completely interested, I have to confess, for this and Mudbound, I only watched <laughs> the first hour of the movie. But you can do that on Netflix. Exactly. That's what's interesting about uh, Netflix. It's so easy to just stop watching the film. <laughs> Unlike in a cinema where you have to make a big spectacle, you know, of getting up and walking out. Yeah, there's going to be someone like me in the screening of Song to Song counting every walkout. Right. going to be one of those people. <laughs> exactly. And there we have it. Yeah. Another Terrence Malick reference. Oh, no, it was me this <laughs> time. Damn it. Yeah, you know, when you walk out, out in the cinema... You are wondering if there's a Glenn Falkenstein in there judging you. You know, you wonder, like, should you do it surreptitiously and kind of sneak out, or do you need to make a big dramatic thing about, well, that was crap, you know, and just annoy everyone else who's enjoying it in the cinema. But on Netflix, it's just easy, you know? You just flick a button and boop. 
I do remember the last screening I went to of Don't Judge Me, The Phantom Menace, uh, when they were going to release them all in 3D, a group of just got up halfway through and said, so bad, and just walked down. You can't do that with me. I feel like you know what you're getting into when you go to see The Phantom Menace, and they probably bought the tickets just because they wanted to do that in, in public as some kind of performance art or like re- you know secret revenge against George Lucas. I don't know. But, but that's interesting because that made me think, are we going to have a future where there are sort of public Netflix screenings? That, yeah, it you sounds know? like... A cinema. <laughs> actually, actually, on a serious point, this actually has happened. There are films yeah. that wanted to qualify for awards contention. So Netflix has done the absolute bare minimum and released exactly, them like yeah. two screens in some small town in the Midwest of the US. It's going to be wow. really interesting to see how they handle Martin Scorsese's The Irishman because that's the by far the biggest profile thing that they've ever released. That's interesting because, look, there is a tension here which I should bring out because I should admit we're being slightly hypocritical because all this time we're trying to you know, talk about we should save the independent indie theatre chains. And Netflix just goes on and releases films on their channel. And why would you go out and support independent movies or independent theatre chains if you can just watch it on Netflix? So there is an argument there that there should be a window before Netflix decides to do their own thing. But whether or not it's justified or whether or not people can make the effort to go out and see a movie in the cinema, I don't know. Yeah, convenience is winning out. Um Netflix gives you so much that even though it's not perfect, it doesn't have every single thing you want, I think for a lot of people it's good enough and they think, why should I make the effort? Getting back to Bright, which I think is the point, or, you know, (laughs) to bring back the brightness in the episode. uh, Brighten things up. (laughs) Oh, you're much better. Okay. Uh, I I built on a solid foundation. (laughs) I was just wondering, you know, all this time while I was watching it, what if Luke Besson made this movie? And he did. It's called Valerian, and it's a much better movie. With this similar... Valerian managed to be less ham-fisted. I know. Somehow, than Exactly, than and it's Pride. got a similar kind of plot about, you know, multifaceted, multiracial, multi-species characters, yeah. and doing social commentary about... It's basically a better version of Bright. But Bright. It's still very different, but I, I see, yeah, there are some similarities. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Valerian. I was the lone standout who did not enjoy this film... I uh, with Bright, however, and you enjoyed Bright. They're both bad I, in significant ways. Uh, they are both bad in significant ways. Bright is bad in the sense that it is very tonally uneven. There are moments of incredibly well acted. There are moments of incredible sincerity, fucked, followed by, by this faux, you know, bad boys type thing. I mean, yeah. Will Smith is essentially half his Mike Larry persona in Bad Boys, and half his I Robot jagged cop who is really frustrated with the system. And there's a wonderful moment with Joel Edgerton towards the end of the film, and he is great in this. He acts his heart out below yeah. piles and piles of makeup, and then they just absolutely let it down with this complete schlock that should have that they should have left at the door of Suicide Squad. Joel Edgerton is so committed in this film. I mean, uh, and the other thing uh, which I was thinking about was Will Smith. I mean, just the persona. What what is Will Smith now? Like, what what is is he a thing? Is he an actor? Is he a brand? Is he just Will Smith? Is he like All a thing itself? Is know? he the Fresh Prince? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, uh, I saw him like there's Focus, there is oh, a Suicide so Squad. Yeah, ex- exactly, but he's just playing different variations I think of Will Smith, he's, which he's, is kind of what Johnny Depp has become as well. He's right? in a similar position to Tom Cruise, which is the aging tentpole action franchise star who, like, how do you manage your image? 
And if you're Tom Cruise, the answer is try and keep doing the same thing. But the thing with Will Smith is, and he's one of the few actors who can do this, I'll put Tom Cruise in that category, Bruce Willis too, where they can do really engrossing action sequences, they can do real visceral action sequences, but ones that are also duly emotive in parts. And that's he has what a great this, charisma. And that's what this film needed. And the f- action sequences, they're unrelenting at times, but if you had that underworld element of vibrancy to it, which actually I thought re- made the, the film quite good yeah, in parts. I thought the action sequences were really the high point of this film. Um, I found them really well staged, really enjoyable, um, good use of CGI for the most part. Going for a, you know, kind of, it's it's an interesting tonal mix because this is kind of a grounded, gritty approach to this really fantastical narrative in a lot of ways. And the action, for the most part, is very grounded. You know, it, we're not in an age where movies about fantastical elements have action scenes that are just CGI ragdolls flying around. This is mostly played like a regular action film. And directed well, staged well. I want to bring this point back to a much more broader scope because I was thinking about, you know, Netflix has a lot of money and it's trying to take risks, yes. But at the same time, is Bright the best option? I mean, you could have used that money to fund probably two or three better films. Oh, yeah, of course. But I I guess we'll get around to this later on with some of the other films we're talking about. But Netflix are interesting as a distributor because they're jumping from really Fox Searchlight movies like Myra of Ritz Stories to something outrageous and over the top that other studios wouldn't fund for a hundred million dollars like bright and they pick up foreign films as well as we'll get into later in the, the story well we'll get to find out the answer to both those questions because they have greenlit a sequel to bright and actually did so the day before the film was released so apparently we'll see more of this world. it was really well rated it was it was watched by a lot of people it actually met and ex- yeah, exceeded was, their expectations it was netflix boxing day release that's what, right that's exactly what it was. and they pushed it hard there were a lot of ads for this on youtube and it was all over the front page one thing i'll say about bright though is like it's kind of unpleasant do you find that like some of the, the when you were talking about like the tryhard bad boys kind of stuff, like some of the visual like bleach filters and and like it felt like B grade Tony Scott and a lot of the references to racism seemed really ham fisted, but also not that well uh, thought out. Like if black people are orcs, I don't think we should compare that to you know black people making a deal with the Dark Lord 2,000 years ago. That's just muddying the waters a little bit. Yeah, now that we've addressed that, I'll simply say that that element of the film, I think it was cinematic, a broader issue with the film in that the world building was not well thought out. It's a bad they script. Pre- Well-directed, bad script, I think. They gave a premise and a concept and did not develop it. And they did that humans have not really been impacted by this world. I mean, we pretty much have got on in this film as we always have. There's no idea of how yeah. we're being changed by this. That's right. And Maybe w- that's budget. You know, they don't want to imagine a completely different futuristic Lord of the Rings world but yeah it's like it's just like our world with a few fantasy elements grafted onto it there's a moment where you see a dragon fly across the screen and I'm thinking hang on I think the world would be a little bit different if there were dragons in this and surely that should have come up by now in the script because that's a that's a pretty big detail you've just dropped in the background for a cool shot you, you would think so. Well, you can make up your own mind. Bright is streaming on Netflix, as is every film and television show we're going to discuss in this episode. The next one of which is Mudbound, starring Garrett Hedlund, Carrie Mulligan, Jason Clark, Jonathan Banks of Breaking Bad fame, and Mary J. Blige. I didn't recognize her right away, but she was great in this film. This is set in rural Mississippi, both prior to and following the Second World War. And in large part, it deals with two families, in particular two men who travel off to war and the consequences and follow through what happens later in their lives. Virat, what did you think of Mudbound? Okay, full disclosure, I'm in love with Carrie Mulligan, so none of this would be unbiased. I cannot visually or even thematically hate a film with Carrie Mulligan in it, and that includes The Great Gatsby. 
even though it was a terrible movie, but I still kind of loved it because she was in it. Great Gatsby is exactly the kind of movie Netflix would fund. Like there's some bizarre gambit. Yeah, I, I was one of the... I do did not, not like yeah. Great Gatsby at all, oh dear. Yeah, but, but it's a weird one. I think but it is on Netflix too. On the subject of... Oh, of course, everything is on Netflix, right? Except for the, that thing you really want to watch right now, that's not on Netflix, especially in Australia. Fix that, Netflix. Put every movie I specifically want on the service by sunrise, or yeah. you'll pay what, for this. What, um, what yeah. is this region encoding things of different countries? Yeah, it was, different it, was, movies? it was such a sad day for me when they cracked down on VPNs due to pressure from the studios. Because you used to be able to just, if you had a US VPN, just switch that on. And then suddenly you're watching the entire American Netflix selection. Turn it off and you're watching the Australian selection. Uh, and well, then one day, thanks to studio <laughs> pressure, it all went away. Obviously, this is not something we're encouraging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> suggesting. But back to... Look, that, back to Movie, you know, we're in an internet world. Movies should be available. Like, it, there shouldn't be regional restrictions on distribution for things on the internet. But anyway, um, putting aside that opinion, uh, Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, it's interesting that she actually is in this film because when I started watching it, you know, like like about five minutes in, I was like, wow, that actress. Who is she? She really looks like Carrie Mulligan. I Surprise! It's Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan has so, that a plus makeup, I guess. Yeah, she's got a weird sensibility of like she can look like anyone else, and yet feel like, this is Carrie Mulligan. Because she's got a brand and a wave, like there's a presence about her where you feel like, this is Carrie Mulligan, and yet she can like blend into any character, which is so weird. I don't know how you can do both things at the same time. But anyway, coming back to Mudbound. Acting. (laughs) Yes. It's like extras Ian McKellen. I act, so Ian, so Ian, so Ian. I act, so Ian, so Ian, so Ian. Carrie Mulligan uses that technique, and she's always been very, very good at it. Going back to Doctor Who and shame and all this stuff. But back to the film, I really liked elements of this film. Uh, My favorite American author is John Steinbeck, and this reminded me of many respects of East of Eden, these two families over generations and watching both of them and how they interact. Um, I felt for myself, though, while I appreciated they had to set up the story, the film really got interesting for me when in the latter half, and it, or I should say the latter linear half, because it does jump back and forth, where the characters, 1945, following the Second World War and what a society means, what happens to them in the context of a quite racially divided Mississippi. I think the social commentary in this movie is quite interesting, and that's not something you usually see in the Western genre. I mean... I think the good Western films actually do that pretty well, but I was surprised to find that in a Netflix film. If I don't know what that means from my very closeted, blinkered point of view, but I was very interested to see how they did that. This commentary about PTSD and about racial divisions, which I was like, oh my God, this is getting interesting. And yet, and then the movie finished. I didn't get that far into it, so I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to continue the movie. But look, I watched about half of this, and I found it pretty dull. Like it, it seemed like it, it's t- going into some yeah. issues that could make for a really rich film, but it felt to me like it was just going through the motions of these kinds of narratives. You remember we talked about uh, Lucky, that, Lucky. that oh, movie yeah, Lucky. with Harry yeah, Stanton. Yeah. It's a, and it, and oh, David Lynch. <laughs> and okay, we're at the seventeenth minute mark. We ticked off Malik and Lynch for another week. All right. But more to the point, uh, uh, they have no <laughs> films on Netflix. We promise. <laughs> but like more to the point, this kind of gave me that feel where it's a lot of that is aesthetic world setting, and it doesn't get to the point until quite late, and then that moment of you know that catharsis or that aha moment 
just doesn't hit you until the movie finishes before you have that release. Yeah, it. I, I found it just really hard to care about the actors in what I'd seen. I found it to be... Like, it's kind of trying to do this um, multi-character strand thing, showing you bits of different stories. And uh, with voiceover that reminded me of... Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven <laughs> um, with sort of like Malickish cinematography but uh, blended with a much more um, much more pedestrian sensibility and it yeah, just is- yeah I don't think it really blended together this mix of approaches it, didn't it felt to- plotting right like it, it didn't have much dramatic interest or interest in the characters it, you know there's not much passion to it. It didn't have the grandiosity of Tense Mag. I mean, it is very confined in yeah. where it is set. The cinematography was one thing, but it really was a character-driven film. And for me, uh, we talked about a bit about how it goes back and forth and looks at their lives. This film had a quite traditional technique of jumping forward at the very beginning and trying to see how this is significant and why. And it's a little tired. It yeah, wasn't used to great effect here. Like about, uh, as soon as the title clicked up on screen after that opening sequence, I just thought, oh, all right, here we go. But to be fair, I mean, they try to infuse some kind of energy into the screenplay by doing that non-linear stuff and narrative. I'm not sure whether it infused any energy or it would have been even more boring without that, I guess. So uh, kudos to whatever whoever tried that technique because the screenplay was pretty dull. So that was Mudbound. And the next thing we are talking about is Adam Sandler's The Myrovitz Stories, which also stars Elizabeth Marvel and Dustin Hoffman and Emma Thompson, which and reteams the and Ben Stiller, so it reteams the Strange and Fiction team from ten years back. And it's written and directed by Noah Bombach of the Squid and the Whale fame. I know. I mean, a Noah Bombach movie in a Netflix. Oh, what is what is the yeah, world? He's, he's, like it's just my mind is exploding. Like shot what, on sixteen millimeter film. You know, it's I know, like so strange like, to see that on Netflix. Or Teal Theory in video on demand like what what is this world actually what is this film i'm curious i, I don't know what it's about okay I'm, I'm sorry this is like a better version of august osage county this is what right. this film is for me this was the best woody allen film probably since 1993 or so like it was just a classic late 80s um big family drama woody allen style movie about woody allen style neurotic new york art intellectuals we can still talk about woody allen Unironically, right? No, it's um, it it really felt like that Woody Allen vibe, except with a bit of a more bitter Noah Baumbach edge to it. Um, it, it was quite beautifully directed in term in um, visually in what could be quite a boring kind of character drama. Like there's there was a shot that really stood out to me early in the movie, where um, the matriarch played by Emma Thompson walks down a hallway and the camera kind of looms back and pulls up showing making the house look like this huge cavernous hall and it gave you the sense of at least to me i when i saw that image it made me think about like the significance of this house and how like the history imbued in it and uh yeah bumbuck has an interesting way of bringing that out because that's really what the movie's about it's about history and our attachment to it and it pays off really nicely at the end i, I quite enjoyed this film I mean, it's so the the use of place and the setting is really interesting in this movie because you can really see how the house becomes this sense of uh, claustrophobia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can really see how the characters feel trapped in this one location, and because like there's not much happening outside of these locations, it's really interesting how in sort of these finite spaces you are staging quite tense scenes. And there's a there's a counterpoint to that where. A, moment of emotional release and confession is staged in this big outdoor space 
Um, yeah, Baumbach's a, a great director, I think, um, at least from a visual sense. This movie's really about family squabbles. Some people will hate it because it's about artsy wankers. But, but also at the same time, Adam Sandler playing an artsy wanker type. He's it, great. It's he's really such a good cool. towards the, Yeah, it's towards the end, he's really given the, the opportunity to flex his dramatic muscles. And he's fantastic. You know, he's such a talented actor. But he, I think when he makes these movies like his six, you know, comedies for Netflix, he's not really trying. He's in it. Makes him money. People like it. He just kind of coasts. But man, he's capable of so much. And it's not just dramatic. Like there is still that funny edge to this. He's still playing the similar Adam Sandler type character, yeah. in that he can, you know, go nuts in an instant. And he plays that for laughs. Um, some of the family fight scenes towards the end of this, I, you know, it's it's dark, but it's really funny. It's I know. I mean, you've been living under a rock, and you know, the last Adam Sandler movie you've seen is punch drunk love and this is the right. only second adam sandler movie you've been seeing you'd be like oh my god this is the best actor i've ever witnessed this would probably be right right this movie is very um honest uh, you know brutally honest about the ways that families can let us down and the struggle to deal with that legacy but not in a way that is I think just trashing the concept of family. It's it's honest about how we can't separate ourselves from it. It's not a perfect film, but I it's I think it's one of the better Netflix original movies, and I really recommend people to seek it out. So yeah, it's the, good. That is the Marvel stories. That is, of course, screening or streaming on Netflix. We'll be back in a moment talking more. This is Panic by the Smiths. Fans of Black Mirror recognize this immediately, and that is a show we're talking about very shortly. And that was The Smiths with Panic. I've been listening to the whole album since I discovered it following Black Mirror, which we'll be talking about in a moment. We are, of course, talking about all things Netflix. But first, we are talking about Nocturne, which I didn't realize was on Netflix. And I caught this. I think a few of us caught this at the Melbourne International Film Festival yeah, last year. I, I caught this on Netflix. It's not a Netflix original movie, but they made a deal for a lot of territories, as I understand it, including Australia, for it to go straight to Netflix. So it may as well be. Yeah, I saw this at the Melbourne International Film Festival because I am an artsy wanker. So, uh, so you related to the mayor of its stories? I, I, did, I, did, I did a lot. Uh, I related to the Ben Stiller character quite a bit because he was playing the secret life of Walter Mitty kind of person. I was like, oh, yes. Ben Stiller was great in that movie, by the I way. Should... Just as an addendum, you know, spill over into Nocturama, which shows how interested we are in talking about Nocturama. <laughs> this, look, I saw a lot of films. I saw 19 at the Melbourne International Film Festival last year. This was my least favorite. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I saw like four movies, and this would be the least favorite if I saw it there. But, um, <laughs> but like, not it was. It wasn't that bad. Like it, it was 
not the worst movie I, if I'd seen it at the Sydney Film Festival. It definitely wouldn't have been the worst film there. Oh, should we just touch base on exactly what the film is? It is a, it is a film set in France, and is it about it is about a number of young people and a bomb attack that is perpetrated, and them who are, they who are suspected of perpetrating this attack spending a night in a shopping center hiding mm. out and getting to know them and slowly teasing out the motives yeah. behind what happened. The director is is it Bertrand? His first name Bertrand Bonello. I know his last I, name I is Bonello. Bonello, he's a kind he's of French. One, French wonder kid. He, he's made some waves for a lot of artsy, abstract movies. He made an interesting film about Yves Saint Laurent called Saint Laurent, not to be confused with the competing film Yves Saint Laurent a few Much years ago. better film than Nocturama. Yeah. Another um, better film than Nocturama, actually. Yeah, look, Nocturama, I guess Glenn probably has the, the most burning hate for it, so I, maybe you should go first. <laughs> look, it's, it's very simply, this is a... A not too veiled political film about, I guess, who are the greatest heroes and villains in society, and it, it depends in large part. The appeal of what they were going for depends in empathising with at least one of eight odd characters, and none of them are either interesting or endearing, or you, and you just don't spend enough time with any of them to get to know them. We get introduced to them over the course of one evening, except for I think fairly one or maybe two or two. There's no real backstory to any of them. We have no sense of them as a community. And come the end of the film, the only slightly redeeming aspect of it in the sense that it broke up the complete monotony of it, um, it, it was as a drama, as a character study, I could, I, I could not get behind this. Okay, I'm going to slightly defend this film, even though I didn't like it, because... I think hey, it deserves defending, too. Yeah, okay. Uh, mostly, look, we complain that there are no movies about young people this basically has eight that's a good point it's about an an interesting mix of young people across different backgrounds and even and ages and show yeah shows the sorts of people you don't often see except in french art house films and it tries to empathize with them without doing the whole young people are carefree kind of trope it's very you know unmanipulative in the way that it gets you to empathize with them in my opinion so it's sort of take it or leave it in the way that it depicts these young people exactly and they all come from different social statuses and different social strata and you can see how they interact and yet there is that kind of anarchic streak which you often see within young people today and he tries to diagnose why that may be so, and why young people are disenfranchised with current politics of the world. So in that sense, there is something interesting happening. It's just the execution may not be the best way. I mean, the film really gets interesting in the second half when these people are locked in together in the shopping center and how they actually, the insecurities kind of grow up and they come across in different ways. The My favorite sequence of the entire film was the fantasy song my way and how yeah, that was yeah. picturized in the, on that one person. Uh, that's the probably most interesting aspect of the film, but in how we're doing it and how commentary on young people is pretty interesting. It's a very strange film. Um, I agree that the best parts of it were watching the young people interact in the second half, but Bonello isn't really interested in making much of a drama. This is quite an abstract piece. The first half of the film, in showing people planning out the terrorist attack, withholds almost all the details. So it's a very beautifully shot, almost geometrically edited together sequences of people walking down hallways, getting on and off trains, so you don't know what's going on, and then suddenly bombs are going off. The second half is about these people hiding out in a shopping center. It's clear that if it's not a drama, this film is really being designed to be um, kind of just a pure aesthetic and symbolic experience that I think... You know, the the only rationale for the terrorist attacks that were given in the film is it had to happen. 
They're, they're not being done for any political reason except for opposition to capitalism. And I think he was going for some kind of um, metaphor against capitalism no, so by showing how people are still trapped within the system that even after they've committed this anti-capitalist act, they hide out in a shopping center and they indulge in all of the luxuries of the modern capitalist world. But this image and the aesthetic of this setting, I think, has dictated the narrative in a way that I couldn't get on board with because, you know, at a basic plot level, maybe I'll be, I'm a Philistine for asking this movie to make sense as opposed to just taking it on its, on its, the symbolic level he wants it to read it on. But, you know, why is it a good idea to hide for every terrorist to hide out in a shopping center overnight instead of just going home like everything's normal? A film that makes no sense at all. A film I feel that did this concept really well, uh, was a, for you go very underrated, was The East. And this had a similar idea, except it focused on a three and fairly four for night characters. And it actually did a lot of the things Chris said. It showed why they were doing something, it showed their motivations, it showed their backstories, and it showed the consequences of their actors much more emphatically than what happened in this film, which was, I guess, my major issue with that. But the point of the film, and if you can accept that, is that there has to be no reason why this act was committed in the first place. I mean, if we show backstories, then this becomes, oh, this happened because of that reason or that, you know, troubled past in this person's life. And that's what the director is trying to avoid. He's trying to show that there is no one particular reason. It's just the state of the world, that we are so disenfranchised that this will happen any time. For me, that was a problem because not only is this movie super cold and clinical and, you know, making this statement about society that it's trying to build up, but it felt intellectually hollow and vapid. What's it really saying other than, oh, we're all trapped by capitalism and we're all, you know, there's no escaping the doom that's coming to us. It it just didn't seem that interesting to justify this elaborate conceit of how it's been constructed. That was Nocturama. The next one, and I'm very much looking forward to chatting about this because we have spoken about it privately. We both absolutely adore the series, is Black Mirror. This is the anthology series by Charlie Brooker. Um, It is in its fourth season now. Six new episodes came out over December. I don't think it's an understatement to say that this is a masterpiece and has gotten better. It's an amazing show. I wish I could be part of this conversation because I haven't watched anything since the third season. And aspects of it have come true. It's it's the best thing on television, cinema, Netflix. I don't know. What, like on this, the medium of visual things. It's the best thing out there. Uh, mainly because it's so bleak, yet it's funny. I mean, I know, I know the funny things that can be... We can be in a post-ironic world where everything is ironic and yet somehow funny at the same time. Community did that quite a bit, and it succeeded in doing that kind of alternate timelines thing. But Black Mirror takes it to a whole new level, and it's scary. It's scary because it's just like, oh my god, this is actually happening. This is not even the future. This is now. I used to appreciate how they've been much more emphatic and even a little more obvious in tying together the episodes, because it is an anthology series taking place in one universe, and with the return of characters like Waldo and uh, an element of Metalhead, which I don't want to ruin, they are really tying it together, all the way from um, the episode with the pig to 15 million merits, which is very exciting. Really? Wow. I I hadn't realized that. It's, it's very impressive. I mean, it's just that like... pretty cool. Uh, as, as individual episodes, there are some standout things. And I'm just like, if I had to like pick some of my best individual episodes uh, as a TV series or like as a series, I would San like... San Junipero? There would be like two or three Black Mirror episodes. The opening there. episode with the pig. Oh my God. Oh, yeah, For wow. me, that's the highlight of the show. 
Um, it was such clever satire. It gets better. And it's and it's scary. I, I've got to watch season four. It, yeah. it does get better. Um, you mentioned San Junipero. Um, this had the best reception of any Black Mirror episode, and I think they recognized it was fantastic. that. Going, it was. And going through a different tone actually worked, and they did with my favorite episode of the series, which is Hang the DJ, which is the line from the Smith song we heard earlier. It is an episode about the foibles of dating and romance in the digital age in what is coming in many senses increasingly impersonal and out of something and it had an end and it had it was an episode which while at once bleak was at the same time incredibly in respects uplifting and romantic and moving and that is a function of the casting as a function of the screenplay it is a function of this clinical but also deeply colorful world they're able to create not just in the entire season in particular in this one quite many respects magical episode I mean, I have to actually emotionally take stock after watching a Black Mirror episode because I'm just completely devastated. It's the most emotionally wrecking show Twin Peaks. out there. David Lynch. No. We're not talking about that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kyle McNaughton. But Lynch. Yeah. Lynch. Is he on Netflix? Oh, no. I uh, know. He's only on Stan. That's uh, all right. He's... Uh, Stan is also a great streaming series. Yeah, Stan's yeah. pretty good. We're not going to back Stan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank go Nick Kyrgios. Oh, he's lost. Sorry. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. But the point is, Black Mirror, it's, it's, I don't know. Like, you can't watch, at least for me, I couldn't watch two or three episodes in one go because just the emotional heft of each episode is so strong. It's like you're being hit with a sledgehammer of reality. But like, this is this is where we're at. Speaking of being hit with a sledgehammer, though, what's great about Black Mirror is that it doesn't do that. A show coming in with the aims of we're going to show the dark side of technology could so easily just be a preachy mess. But Black Mirror is generally pretty subtle political commentary. And one that did that really well was the my second favorite from the series, which was the first episode of the season, which was the USS Callister, which was a parody. I am a Star Trek fan, a Star Wars fan from coming a long way back. And this was an episode that was critical, but also a loving take on not just those shows and the type of culture they're fetuated and good and bad, but also a loving take because while they were critical of some of the aspects the show has shows like that have spurned at the same time when in the manner in which they dealt with the execution of the plot it was faithful to a T to elements of the best of not just the original series but of the next generation and it was very clever but also ironical there was one particular line by a character when they're moving towards and let's just say an object in space which was one of the more ironic aspects of any TV series I've heard and it hit me like a that did hit me like a sledgehammer and it was wonderful and Jesse Plenum's we mentioned him last week he's an everything and he deserves to be in everything because he is absolutely superb. Basically what Glenn is trying to say that all three of us agree on something so why the hell if you're not watching Black Mirror go and correct and rectify that mistake. Maybe there's a person who listens to the show who hates all of us. <laughs> you know he doesn't agree with anything any of us like ever. Chris don't talk about my parents like that. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're listening please do write us. Yeah yeah yeah. Hate, go ahead and hate watch Black Mirror and tell us why it sucks and why we all suck and should die. Please. Actually tell us why we suck but please tell people that Black Mirror is amazing because it is. <laughs> It is. Um, so that was Black Mirror, Archangel and Crocodile are so excellent episodes from that series. The next series we are talking about is season two of The Crown, which came out. I had some surgery at the end of last year, so I had a couple of days at home, and I watched this. I don't usually binge watch Netflix, but I watched this series, all ten episodes, in one go. 
I liked the first series in many respects. I felt they did glamorize aspects of the royal family. I felt it was a little too safe, a little too neat. This was a much, not, I wouldn't say so much darker, more darkly episode, a series of episodes, because it dealt with um, aspects of the royal family's history which aren't necessarily as well known and aren't necessarily as, well, as publicized. Um, certainly there was aspects of how divorcees were treated by the parties involved and how Margaret was treated and how she goes on to characterize in this later season. I used to think uh, Matt Smith and Claire Foy are really getting into the roles, which is sad because we know they will be replaced next season as the show moves into the ensuing decade. But I did like this season more than the first one. Brad, I know you saw it too. What did you think of The Crown season two? I saw it as an extended sort of take of Julian Fellow's infamous Downton Abbey. Uh, and not Downton Abbey when it was good, which was basically season one or until Matthew Crawley was there. I mean, Downton Abbey when it basically became an extended soap opera post-Matthew Crawley's character leaving, uh, which is Dan Stevens, by the way, who played Beauty, you know, the Beast and Beauty and the Beast. I have to just ask as a litmus test, did you guys like the movie, the Stephen Frears movie, The Queen? I I, I, I I did, and I'll say what I liked about it, because this was the first time when a figure of this notoriety and who has this significance within history, and this particular monarch was uh, depicted on screen in the semi-fictional take in a manner that was not entirely glorifying. And it was, I'm sure there have been t- there has been times where it's done before, but not in such a prominent and well and celebrated and lauded British film, which I'd appreciate. Also, Helen Mirren, who is just superb in everything she does. Right. I just found Chris, it. Chris, uh, yeah. you know my feelings about Stephen Frears uh, and yes, anything yeah, he does. Big fan. Big fan. Oh, uh, Victorian Abdul. Oh, God. I mean, it just blew me away. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. So high, much... high praise from Virat, oh, Victoria yeah. and Abdul. Uh, and, and any Stephen Frears production where he tries to simultaneously make you feel so, so empathetic about the incredible lives of uh, the royal family and people in power, yeah. and yet how human they can be. And, oh, my God, look at these people yeah, in, yeah. in so it's much beautiful, pain. Beautiful, honest filmmaking yeah. about people who, who we really need to be yeah, I know. made to you know, look exactly. up to. Because they are humans, too. They make mistakes. They have an empire to you know, rule and stuff. I so think, it's difficult. I think what I'm trying to get to is that you couldn't pay me to watch The Crown, but I'd like <laughs> you guys to convince me otherwise. Uh, don't watch it. it it's shit. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I... Really? Wow. Okay. Really? So, 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 really? Very different is, yeah. is that your actual stance on the crown, or was that just a punchline? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Okay. <laughs> Look, tell, us, it's, tell us why you think. It's, it's indulgent in the sense that I'm just like, why do we need a series about the royal family to begin with? We don't. Like, we, we, they're just irrelevant. I think it was actually more interesting <laughs> when it was dealing with other characters outside of the royal family. Yeah, but why and do we need a series about the royal family to talk about characters outside the royal family? Politically, <laughs> I'm not sure why it's interesting to watch a movie about like a series about like the real royal family. But it is a fascinating aspect of history, and purely in terms of production design, this series they spend millions and millions per episode, right. and uh, the you know the the, the exactly b- they and could the, spend it on something better. And the bits <laughs> where the first Christmas mentioned by the Queen, the Churchill painting, there are individual episodes where they dig into these aspects of history which are contested, and they show a version of it which is taking a political stance in one sense. And I do appreciate it for that. It's not perfect, and surely there are other characters, both fictional and non-fictional, who I more interested in but I still appreciate the 
not just the production values, but the level of, in terms of quality, cinematography, everything that they were trying to go for in so many respects achieved. I know, I'm just looking at it for right now. He, he was not a fan of the series, but... But, it, like, <laughs> look at what they did to Matt Smith. He went from playing the Doctor, as in, like, I've got a bow tie, I've got a fez, I'm cool, to Philip. You. Well, Like, he, what, what a dramatically underwhelming transformation is that well there are reports that he could be replaced by Paul Bettany of all people so we are yet to I see I wouldn't be betting on that so we will be back <laughs> I wouldn't a- bet any on that <laughs> <laughs> thank you Chris <laughs> That's, that, was, that was great that's the best oh wow we reached peak pun on the show <laughs> so we will be back in a moment talking about another show I binged over the weekend which I know Virat liked a lot more uh, with this is Big Black Delta with Hugging and Kissing which is very relevant to a sh- another show we'll be talking about shortly Stay tuned. Hugging and Kissing from Big Black Delta. That was the song from The Sinner, which we were talking about in a moment. But first we are talking about, I mentioned earlier that I don't generally binge watch Netflix, but the other day, on Saturday morning, I was in a cafe, I decided to watch one episode of this show. I finished later that night. I watched the entire thing. I absolutely adored it. It is Michael Scher. It's The Good Place. He is known for The Office and Parks and Rec, and it is starring Kristen Bell, Ted Danson, and a few others. I say Kristen Bell because I was chatting with Chris uh, about this show earlier, and he, he yeah, I was it. I was very confused to hear that Eleanor was played by Christian Bale, and I was like, when did that name become unisex? So just to be clear for those playing at home, it's Kristen Bell. Very different, not Christian Bale. Very different. And this is essentially the premise: is that uh, Kristen Bell, Eleanor, go. Passes away. It still sounds goes. like Christian Bale, man. It still sounds like okay, Kristen Bell, Kristen Bell, Kristen Bell. <laughs> Whew, uh, goes to the good place where she's met by Ted Danson, and she's one of the few who gets to go to the good place after you pass away. But she has the feeling that she does not belong there, and frivolities and shenanigans ensue. Farat, what did you think of the good place? It's my favorite trashy TV show of 2017. And by that, I mean, I really, really enjoyed binge watching it, which like I usually do not watch binge. I don't binge watch Netflix shows because I have other things to do because I have a life, I think. He's staring right at me as he says this. I know, because I'm like... <laughs> He's not sure. <laughs> but, you know, uh, this one was, this is fun. And by that, I mean, like, you know, when TV series used to be like, I know I don't care about the flaws. I don't care about whether they're good or bad. Before just, this prestige TV garbage had to ruin it all with you know, quality be, script writing and direction. No, before before the wire, before the Sopranos, before Six Feet Under, before 
you know, true detective and TV was gritty realism. You know, I know, but but this is fun. Like I actually had fun watching this, and I can't recommend. Like, okay, we're dreary and depressing critics, but we also like to have fun sometimes. Like sometimes, not all. On occasion, yes. And this is one of the times that I thought, oh my god. I actually like something, like genuinely like candy floss, like something, not like ironically like something. This is fun, and it's and you can enjoy it on an intellectual level. You can enjoy it on a purely just crazy level. And because it has six characters, including one Janet, who I absolutely adore, and I know that the characters in this film who are not Ted Danson, Kristen Bell, who weren't big names, are going to do amazingly out of this. Oh yes, show. yeah. Ted Danson in, in this show, which is fantastic. I mean, he's really good. I mean, it's Ted Danson, so he's going to be good anyway. But, like, my really nerd, like, first-year philosophy kid enjoyed this show on a purely intellectual level because it was all about, oh, my God, what is morality? What is real? This is, is metaphysics? sounding like, very different to what you were just selling it as a minute ago as, like, uh, candy floss fun. No, but, okay, it's both. Okay, wow, well, yeah, all right. It can you know, be both. It can have the irreverent one-liners, or it could have the deeply philosophical purgatory versus Elysian Fields imagery yeah, and it, pull it off. Yeah, it's it's like, okay, uh, I don't know if you've been watching this other comparative show called Lucifer with Tom Ellis. Uh, that's a bit like that. It's got a bit of that vibe, but, you know, it's got that carefree sort of, you know, we know what we're doing, and I know it doesn't make any sense but just bear with me kind of vibe. And this is what The Good Place is. It actually takes you to The Good Place, which is metaphorical, but also fun. So it's like heroin. <laughs> no. We are also no. not encouraging that, for the record. <laughs> okay, it's, it's got a heroine, which is Kristen Bell. Oh, ah, there we go. Not, not the hero Christian Bale. <laughs> Again, very, very different. And we are not one to spoil things here, but I got to say, at the beginning of the first season, there is an incredible twist. It will blow yeah. you away. Okay. And it's, the second... it's, it's my favorite twist of any twist, and I, I got twisted by the twist. It was twisty. And the second season, they... I want to play Twister with you. <laughs> We're doing it right now, and you can imagine us in the Film Fight Club studios just playing Twister yeah, while talking exactly. about films. My head is underneath my knee right now. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're in red, dude. Oh, oh, damn it! The floor is lava. Oh, but this is this is a wonderful show. I love when they go to the in between place where things are both really sometimes good and sometimes bad. Basically, you can have all the beer you want, but it has to be room temperature, and you listen to all the music you want, but it has to be the Eagles and it has to be their live recordings. So there's a lot of like great yeah. little things they just throw in there. It's, it's better. Very it's clever. better than the limbo in Inception. It's basically yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. I like the good place, and also like as a conceptual place, it's a good place. That is the good place. And the next thing we're talking about, we all have been watching a lot on Netflix. We each have a couple of minutes to run through a few of our own favorite things that we have seen that we are, in some sense, also looking forward to. Chris, what were your favorite picks from Netflix that we have yet to see? But please convince us what we should watch. Um, a film I enjoyed on there was My Happy Family. It's a Georgian. Um, uh, sort of family drama it's in a pretty romanian style so if you've been following the romanian new wave movies like those by christian manju for example it's pretty similar to those um it's about a woman who wants to move out of home essentially she's a a adult you know with kids who are you know reaching adulthood themselves and she's just surrounded in claustrophobia by a family that is constantly arguing with each other and haranguing her for things. And her relationship with her husband isn't working. And one day she just wants to leave. And it's about the massive social pressure of people who just won't let her do what she wants. 
Um, I think it's very true to life and true to how a lot of family units out there operate that often aren't um, depicted in films. And it shows the ways that um, people can be carelessly cruel to each other, you know, while trying to be kind. Um, it's, yeah, I, I, it's probably not in my top 20 of the year, but just outside of it. So that's a strong recommendation from me. Um, I've also been enjoying just starting watching it, but um, I've been enjoying this Japanese show called Midnight Diner, which is a Netflix original show, which is it's basically I found it to be an interesting TV concept because it's somewhere between very light drama and comedy, very relaxing show about people who go to a restaurant at midnight, essentially, and the way their lives intersect. Um, It's very cute. It's very nice. It's great kind of like veg light entertainment. Um, yeah, I think Netflix pretty much have someone for everyone with something for everyone with their original entertainment. Yeah, uh, what I've been watching is some interesting things because Netflix is a place for interesting things. Uh, one movie is called Brahman Naman by the director purely by the letter Q. He's very mysterious. Uh, his actual full name is Koshik Mukherjee, but he likes to go by Q. I've always been a fan of the director R, so I haven't seen <laughs> Q's stuff. But please continue. <laughs> R- Grow up, 007. <laughs> Thank you, quartermaster. Uh, but yeah, Brahmanaman is actually an interesting uh, adult uh, sex comedy kind of vibe uh, from an Indian perspective. Uh, it basically follows a group of quiz nerds uh, in India, uh, kind of adolescent teens who are basically trying to get laid. Sort of, sort of that kind of American Pie kind of vibe, but set in, in an Indian context, which is new for an Indian audiences and that kind of thing. That hasn't been done. Also, it's got it features a very interesting. Uh, song sequence with Jethro Tull's Locomotive Breath, which is a very interestingly set sequence there. Also, it has uh, Shashank Arora, which you could recognize from other films like uh, Lipstick Under My Burka and also from Shok Sharma's Zoo. And he's now becoming an indie darling of the masses, and it's about time he got some credit for his acting skills. So you should check this one out if you're looking for that. It's quite a Western take as well. The other one I'm looking forward to is... Sacred Games, which is in development right now, is a Netflix India series, and it's going to be directed by Anurag Kashyap. Now, Kashyap is someone who is everyone in the festival circuit would know directed the Gangs of Wasipur series. So, him venturing into Netflix world is very interesting. It's another, and this is yeah, another big director, Lewid, though. Yeah, Lewid there, and it's based on a book by Vikram Seth. And Vikram Seth is interesting because his other book, Q and A, was adapted into Slumdog Millionaire by Danny Boyle. So. You have got a lot of heft coming out of that, so any kind of TV series in that kind of venture is going to be interesting. And the other one which I was really intrigued by is First They Killed My Father, directed by Angelina Jolie. Yes, you heard that right. And it's actually really, really cool. It's really good. I wish I'd caught that so we could cover that on this show, because I've heard nothing but great things from everyone who saw that. I mean, I wanted to hate watch it, because I thought I would hate it, and I just didn't. And I was really sad about that because I'm like, oh my god, this is good, and it just kind of warps my conception it's just of what I liked. Tragic to have to give props to Angelina Jolie for you, isn't it? Isn't it, Virat? Okay. No, no. I mean, she is a good director, as proven by this movie. It's 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 really interesting story. It's set in the Khmer Rouge about a young child soldier and how this person tackles all the moral dimensions of it and it's a memoir style story but it's 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 fascinating like just what this person one person goes through in that context of Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and child soldiers and just finding their life adversity it's basically so much strategy but but done well like not tragedy porn 
But yeah, it's fun. And the last one I would like to pitch with, which Glenn doesn't like that much, is the end of the effing world. The end of the effing world, which is actually the title of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, 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 I'm not trying to swear because but, I've been reprimanded for that. But in the show, you actually, it's. Are we allowed to swear because you see the you know the actual title in the show, not just on yeah. Netflix? I think there are hashtags where some of the letters. I think you, you, everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think we're coming to the end of the effing world, but this is a show which is got an interesting premise. It's basically about uh, a couple uh, with pathological tendencies, and they are basically two very unlikable people trying to get into a relationship, and yet. They're basically trying to kill each other as well at the same time. Uh, Glenn didn't like it because it didn't, he didn't felt that he didn't... Well, the show didn't fulfill the premise. Well, I didn't really relate to these characters, I can say. That's the point. They're <laughs> unlikable people. Well, I do appreciate that that this is a young adult fiction novel. Well, it's based on that, and I am not so much the target audience. Um, I do quite like Alex... Uh, Lawther, who was in uh, Shut Up and Dance, which was one of the great episodes of Black Mirror. That was his breakout role. Um, I do like the performers in this. My only thing for me was, and I think we go back to the Nocturama issue, you're dealing with a number of young people who are not so much their own well-developed in that these aren't characters who are entirely endearing or sympathetic. Or, and I would have liked, and there was a, a film, uh, I can't, can't remember the name, but this is a, I would, I would see this as a longer-running series, um, I felt that in this episodic approach where you didn't really get the investment and you wouldn't necessarily want in certain characters, similar to The Crown, where you just have it's episodic over the one season and the course of 10 years and you may not get to know about them as much as you would like to. It's an interesting point you raise about young people because, honestly, I, I think there is a way to talk about young people being disenfranchised and unlikable without it making you feel like they don't have to be the nicest people around. I know a lot of young people, you know, because I'm young, and they're not the nicest people around, and that's okay. I think there's something credibility about that in representing that on screen properly. Um, next show I want to talk about is The Sinner. We played the music from that earlier. Um, this is an example of a show where music not only plays a pivotal role, but a very serious role in how a great piece of music, that particular piece of music, can be deployed to great effect. There's Jessica Biel and Bill Pullman. It's based on a neo-noir murder mystery. And it's more of a why done it than who done it. You find out, you see what happens. You see the murder in the opening scenes. And it is a very, it's has all the great aspects of neo-noir. It has the society types, it has missing figures, and it has people who disappear. It has a cultish element to it as well. Um, what I will say was remarkable about the show is that um, the ending, and unusually so, is as harrowing as it is bittersweet, which is not a thing you would normally say about anything, but it is distinguished for that. I know there is a second series in the works, and I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, the other thing I've been watching is Small Crimes, and Nikolai Costa Wilder, the Danish actor who plays Jamie Lannister in Game of Thrones. It is a procedural crime thriller set in a small town from the criminal perspective. Uh, I enjoy a lot of what Nikolai Costa Wilder has done outside of Game of Thrones. Uh, this is interesting in that you get this, uh, in, what a sense, in many sense, some of the Danish films he and others have done, and some of his contemporaries are also on Game of Thrones. Um, the one issue I had with this is that um, you should be interested in this character because usually in the sort of circumstance you would see someone trying to do and basically failing to do the right thing, and we're really not sure for a great deal of the film if he is trying to do the right thing, so therefore um, we 
can't get that much of an investment in the character. The last thing I will say is Godless. I have watched the first episode of this. It is absolutely spectacular what I've seen so far. I'm looking forward to getting into it more. Everything we have spoken to about tonight is streaming on Netflix. You can get it at Netflix. Uh, we'd recommend you do. Netflix.com. Yes, um, that is our show for the week. We'll be back next week talking about I, Tonya, Sweet Country, and Oscar Madness. Wow, it's that time of year again. Also, The Commuter with Liam Neeson. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this. This is, oh, Liam Neeson. He makes a, everyone move a couple of years, and I always look forward to it, and I'm so grateful that he is back on the big screen. Yes, look at critics talking about commercial movies with Liam Neeson in it. So this is Film Fight Club. Look at us up on the 2SCR page. This is Glenn Falconstein, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru, and we will see you next week. Have a wonderful night. Binge bye watch. Bye.